Hello and welcome to another episode of Two Lawyers Walk Into a Bar. I am Cooper Knowlton. I'm joined with my colleague Lee Bergstein. I don't know if you want to say hi, Lee, but I'll just keep I'll just keep plowing on. You, you, um, just, keep, you just keep going. I'll sit in the background. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. We are we are very lucky, feel very fortunate to be joined by Ira Leesfield today. Um, Ira is the founder and managing partner of Leesfield Scalaro, a personal injury firm based in uh, with offices in Miami, Key West, South Beach, and Central Florida. Um, just prior to jumping on, he told us that he's now in the 47th year with that firm. Um, so we have a lot, a lot of uh, time and, and, a, and a long career to kind of go through today. We're very excited to to chat through some of the um, exciting points uh, along the journey. Um, I, I could go into, I, he has an extremely long resume and, and lots on the website. Uh, I saw that in, uh, he was named the lawyer of the year at one point by the trials, uh, trial lawyers for public justice after obtaining a $19.8 million lawsuit against Honda. Um, he had, he spent some time working with the Clinton administration uh, from 92 to 2000 um, as the president's council on physical fitness and sports and uh, the, Phys- the presidential advisory commission on Holocaust assets. Um, like I said, there's a ton of stuff to go through. Um, so I'm, I'm going to stop there unless there's anything important that I missed. Um, but Ira, thanks so much for, for carving out some time and chatting with us today. Uh, I'm glad I can, I can do it. Um, and, uh, nice. I'm in Miami right now and you all are in um, New York, but I am a Brooklyn boy, uh, which, uh, actually says a lot. Um, I think if you're going to do trial work, having, um, being raised on Brooklyn water and uh, Brooklyn exposure for a little while is uh, not a bad place. Uh, I spent my early years in uh, in Williamsburg and my family moved out to Nassau County. Uh, in between, I lived in Borough Park in the Hasidic Jewish area for a while in Brighton Beach, uh, likewise. And uh, so I have a pretty good exposure to uh, Brooklyn. Uh, my family moved me to um, South Florida, and uh, this is where I went to high school and uh, college and law school, uh, with some return visits to uh, to New York, all the boroughs um, in New York. But my education was a public education uh, in the Florida schools and colleges. Um, I joined the Justice Department after graduation from the University of Florida Law School. You're, uh, you're, Ira, you're, you're going, you're going too fast here. There's a lot of, a lot of key points that we want to hone in on. A lot of, a lot of interesting, interesting uh, stories. Stop, that you're... <laughs> stop me wherever you want to stop me. Cooper just wants to talk about Williamsburg because me and him met in Williamsburg in 2018. So, um, but it looks probably, it looked probably very different than when you were there uh, growing up. Well, I went back to see it, my same building on the corner of Penn and Marcy, Marcy Avenue, Penn Street, 220 um, Penn Street is still there. Um, it's kind of fun. It was a little different when I was born there in 1946. Um, uh, corner candy stores kind of stuff. And, but I went back and it's still, you know, it's still Williamsburg. I, I was thought you would say you met in Borough Park, but I, I know that that wouldn't be the case. Borough Park, no one goes there. Voluntarily. Um, 
So you you mentioned you mentioned that you you started in um, in Brooklyn and then you, your family moved to Florida. What what prompted that move and and what did your what did your parents do? Were there any any lawyers in your family at that point? No, no lawyers. Actually, there was no family. Uh, my father uh, left went somewhere and left my mom with three kids. She worked as a single mom uh, to keep a roof over our heads to feed us and. Uh, and th- that was fine. We all, it was, there's some tough times, but we all got through it and I got scholarships to college. So, you know, it, it worked out. And, and did you go to college when you went to college was, was law school and being a lawyer, something that was on your mind? Law school was on my mind uh, prior to college. It was always the goal was really to go to law school. Uh, and that was, and to be a lawyer and to be a trial. So these are the very early um, um, commitment to that. Where do you think that came from? Well, specifically, I think I remember a big red eviction notice on our apartment in, uh, in Brooklyn when my mom couldn't pay the rent. And uh, I was about 13 at the time. And it was a very sad moment for our family uh, being evicted. And we actually moved into a shelter. And uh, I kind of determined that that would be uh, um, something I didn't want to do the rest of my life, that I wanted to be on the other end of having some say-so and some uh, influence over our lives. So I said, you know, eviction notice, you know, and kind of uh, thought about being a lawyer. And uh, it's that's where I went. Interesting. Um, so did you, and did you go, you did uh, four years in, of undergrad and then did you go straight to law school just after that? Exactly. I did. Straight through. No, I, I didn't go straight through because I went into um, the uh, army. I, I enlisted in the United States army after my first year of law school. I did the basic training in San Antonio at Fort Sam Houston and uh, Fort Polk, Louisiana. I was a private first class medic, uh, during Vietnam, uh, Medic were, were the ones who said, you know, someone was wounded or injured or killed, and they yelled, medic. And uh, that was what I trained to do. Uh, so I interrupted law school uh, to uh, to do the military because I was going to be drafted, and that was not a good deal. So I enlisted to not be drafted. Gotcha. So you did, and that was just for one year? That was a one-year one stint in the middle of law school? Yeah, it was one year because then I stayed in the reserves for six years and uh, was uh, was uh, smart enough to get out of the uh, medic deal and join the uh, Judge Advocates General, the legal corps of the uh, Army. And that, of course, was a much different world, being a, a member of the Judge Advocate General Corps. Do you do you think the experience of um, of of being in the Army for that year altered your career path in any way or when did you did you then kind of go back and um, continue on kind of the path that you were on beforehand or do you think that that was a, a, an inflection point that kind of changed the the course of your career moving forward no definitely it, it changed my life my vision of life but also when I was in law school the first year my grade point average was a 2.92 I remember that because it was the very bottom I was a very bottom grade point to make law review. I was like the stepchild 
last person and uh, worked very hard for those grades. When I got back into the military, into the uh, law school class, uh, I graduated with much higher grades and with much more um, accomplishment. Uh, my grades I never made. I don't think I made anything less than a B and most of all, of all my studies were A's and I stayed on, I was doing well enough that I stayed on to teach at the law school. They wanted me to stay, but I didn't want to do that. And then, uh, yeah, the Army is an eye-opener, and a lot can be said pro and con, but for me, both in terms of physical conditioning and mental conditioning, realizing, you know, just how much you can endure, you know, where you can test yourself, the Army was a good experience. What was um, you, you? You, I personally, I'm sure most people have kind of read a lot about what was going on in universities during Vietnam, um, student participation and um, movements both for and against the war. What was the the sentiment in law school during that period of time? You don't really hear about like how um, postgraduate schools what what their position was in the war effort were they was there uh, an overriding sentiment to, to boycott the war was there really no position what was the what was the feeling at, at law school uh, I would say most everybody in law school was greedy could care less about the, the war wanted yeah. to make the best grades and get the best job um, and graduate school was not the hotbed of uh, anti-war sentiment. When I was in school, either undergraduate, I guess undergraduate, is when we bombed Cambodia. I mean, it, it's child's play compared to today in, in terms of dissent and in terms of uh, um, uh, society disruption. I mean, we had a war, there were people against the war and it was strong feelings against the war. Uh, you know, it stopped Lyndon Johnson from running for re-election. But um, honestly, when I compare it to the last decade of American life, it was a non-event uh, compared to what we're looking at now. That's interesting. Um, when when you were in law school around this time, did you think that personal injury work was something that you might gravitate towards? Was that on your radar at that point in time? Not at all. No, what was on my radar was getting the best grades to get the best job to keep that second eviction notice from coming. I was, you know, I was more inclined towards um, um, security and success and achievement and protecting myself against being the um, uh, marginalized person that I was, unfortunately. Or at least economically marginalized. I wasn't emotionally or spiritually marginalized, but economically, yes. So, so tell us a little bit about the transition. You said that earlier. You said that you stayed uh, and taught for a year after after graduation. But tell us a little bit about the transition out of law school and into the world of of the the legal world, the real legal world. Well, it was uh, fun. I um, uh, took a job with the Justice Department in Washington what was called the honors program, Richard Nixon was president. They were looking for safe Southern students to be in the Justice Department who were not left radical or liberal. And they decided that the University of Arizona, a hotbed of conservatism, and the University of Florida, likewise, 
were good places to hire. So they hired me into their honors program um, at a starting salary of $12,800 a year. It was the highest salary in my class. Um, and I did that for two years, um, bored to tears in government work. It was just- What type of work were you doing? It was the antitrust division, but it was the Nixon administration. They didn't bring any antitrust cases. So it was like, you know, it was, it was like nothing. And then a law firm that had tracked me while I was in law school and made me an offer came back at me. Uh, I met the senior partner on a flight somewhere and they offered me a job back in Miami and I took it. And uh, and they, that's the first I'd ever heard of personal injury work uh, hmm. at all. But Did it was you- a really good fit. Did you think when you got to the Justice Department that, that bef- I mean, when you first started, did you think, oh, maybe I'll have a career in Washington and stay and work and work for the Justice Department? Or did you always sort of envision that being a temporary stop? No, I liked being in the nation's capital and I liked the excitement of Georgetown. And no, I, I thought, you know, maybe it would go somewhere, but I was fairly quickly disillusioned by the lack of, of responsibility and honestly, bureaucracy. I mean, I'm not big on bureaucracy, so I took a job in private practice. And what was that transition like? It was pretty easy. I fell into a niche where they gave me a lot of responsibility. I'd never heard of tort law, personal injury law, but that's what they did. They were a well-established firm, and I had good mentors, uh, you know, three senior partners at least, but a couple of others. And it actually was, was a, a, good, a good, smooth transition. Uh, it was relatively seamless. And I like personal injury work because basically, you know, I found out early on, you're helping people who are disenfranchised. And having been a disenfranchised person, you kind of get, you know, you get the feeling of what it's like not to have any power, you know. And, and so everyone we represented, uh, you know, they didn't have money to pay lawyers. It was all contingency fee. And, um and I, I liked it a lot. And I took to it right away. They gave me a lot of responsibility. I started trying a lot of cases. There, I mean, there, there were the cases nobody else wanted to try, typically. But it was it's, good. It's, how, it's, long, how long were you at the uh, firm for before they gave you your first trial or before you tried your first case? About a month, three weeks. Oh, wow. Right <laughs> yeah. wow. So what was yeah. what do you remember? Do you have a, a memory of like what it felt like in the in the run up to that, or you know, sitting uh, in the courtroom waiting for uh, a jury panel to come in for the first time? What what were you feeling? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's all in your stomach, you know. I mean, that's how you feel. It's just like, oh my god. Um, they gave me the cases. No one wanted to try. The first case was an absolute slam dunk loser. No one could have won this case. I had never tried a case. I was by myself. I took a book with me that said, how do you try cases? And uh, I did pick a book. This is what the opening statement, closing argument, you know, voir dire. And I, I did it. And it was terrible. I mean, um, the client was terrible. He was a, a liar and a malingerer. And, uh, and I lost. The uh, jury was out uh, 20 minutes. But the judge... <laughs> It was very sentimental. He's a nice, his name was Thomas Shave. Um, kind of remember all these first experiences. He said, he said, uh, Mr. Lee said, you did something no one else in your firm could do. I said, what was that, Judge? He said, you tried this case. He said, and in your honor, 
I ordered lunch for the jurors at 11.20 so that they so that they wouldn't come back with your verdict in 20 minutes. I kept them another hour. Then <laughs> I gave you the verdict. So it was, it was, a, it was a very uh, genuine experience. I, I, so you, you, sorry, Cooper, but okay, I have one more question. So you, you know, your first, your first trial is this trial that nobody wants to do with this. It sounds like horror show of a client with a jury that kind of decided as soon as they they got the case handed to them. Did that discourage you at all, or or how did you feel moving forward after that first experience? I, I was pretty motivated. I mean, I got through the trial. I made closing argument. I mean, I I, I did all that. Um, it, no, it didn't discourage me. It encouraged me. I was, you know, I thought if I could, at least now I knew the steps, so I was getting ready for the next case. I, I mean, as you're preparing that, you're preparing the next case. So uh, I was good. Yeah, I feel like it's a little bit, you know, I, I don't really try many cases anymore, but I was a former prosecutor, so I used to try a lot of cases in a, in a former life. Um, and it's a little bit, I don't want, this is a crude comparison, particularly for a public servant, but it's a little bit like a sporting event where if you lose, you want to like get right get right back out there and and play the next game. Um, you know, you've sharpened your skills, you've honed your skills, and now you want to keep going versus sitting dormant for a few weeks or a few months. Yeah, it worked. I mean, I'm a pretty sturdy guy, and so you know, it, it worked. It was an experience. Somebody else paid my firm paid the cost. I mean. For me to get an education, then they walked in with the next file, and I went on to do that. Yeah, yeah. So. It's it, it's interesting though. I mean, just kind of backtracking a bit. I think it's interesting that you you've you've now had this long illustrious career in the world of personal injury work, but it, it isn't something that you really sought out, right? I mean, you 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 sort of said you were you were kind of unhappy at the Justice Department, and and you met someone on a plane, and he offered you a job. In, and and you took it because it sounded kind of like an interesting opportunity. Is that right? I mean, it wasn't like you were you were sending out your resume to every big personal injury firm in Florida because that was kind of the world that you were dying to get into. It was kind of just a a random conversation, and you got a good feeling from the from the individual you were chatting with, presumably. And you said, "Sure, I'm I'm ready for a change," and and jumped at an opportunity. Yeah, it was very serendipitous, but um, I don't know about everyone else's life because I only lived mine, but. My whole life has been serendipitous, and that was just that was just a good fit, and uh, and I seem to be lucky enough to interact with good people along the way. So uh, yeah, it was fun until and, this podcast. This is now it all changes. Well, it could, it, <laughs> you know, but probably not. I've got a full a full rest of the day in tonight. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was you know that was phase one. Uh, and I was, I kind of liked what I did. Yeah. No, it, it's, it, I mean, we, we chat with a lot of people about their career arcs and obviously chat with friends and every, everything as well. And it, it's amazing how often successful people, um, it is, they end up in a, in a position largely kind of by happenstance that it's not, it's not that there, there's not always like a carefully executed plan to get from X to Y to Z. Oftentimes it's, well, this, this, I like this guy, I'm going to take this. I'm going to take this leap of faith and end up here and meet another person at a cocktail hour and another person playing tennis. And it just kind of goes in all sorts of directions, but it's always kind of fun to, fun to hear that. Worked for me. 
So, so how long did you, that first firm that you started at, um, how long were you there and, 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 you know, what was the, what was the transition from that to later on starting your own practice? Well, I was there a very busy three years. Uh, uh, our memories sometimes, uh, uh, are not totally accurate, but if you had asked me, I would say that I worked, uh, six days a week, most nights and preparing trials, learning how to be a trial lawyer. And of course, after the, the first case, which is the tobacco, I had the next case, which I actually won, uh, which gave me a little bit of a lift. And I worked all the time for three years. And, and, uh, and uh, you know, it just, uh, you know, it's, it's age appropriate and it's appropriate for a person who wants to get ahead. And, and so that was three years. And then after three years, was, was that when you started your current practice or was there another intermediate step? No, that was, that was it. Uh, that firm that I was with had, uh, the second case I tried was in Key West. It was a tragic case, the death of a 15 year old boy. And I won that case. And, uh, that firm had a, uh, uh, a couple of good sources of business in Key West, but I saw Key West as being an opportunity. There weren't any real trial lawyers there and it's the proverbial uh, small pond and uh, where you can be pretty quickly a big fish if you know if you work at it and so i, I had a uh, built up a, a, a practice and uh, and a bit of a life in in uh, key west i had interesting clients um i was uh, jimmy buffett's first lawyer and good friend and have been good friends with him since since then uh, Went to all his uh, recordings, got his first royalty check for songs that you all have never heard. But, uh, but well, you may have heard them. But we've heard some. We, we've heard some of them. Yeah. Well, yeah. But I know the backstory of some of them. People don't even believe him when I tell them. You know, a, he has a song called uh, "A Pirate Looks at 40. Everyone thinks they know what that's about, but they don't. And then there's another song, "A Woman Going Crazy on Caroline Street." I was with him on Caroline Street, it's right in Old Town, and we saw the crazy woman. Uh, a pirate looked at 40 was about a drug smuggler who was facing 40 years of time and uh, got his girlfriend to allegedly have sex with the federal judge to get a better deal. But <laughs> Jimmy and I were very good friends. He stayed in Key West before he moved to uh, West Aspen, Colorado. He married a very wealthy woman in Palm Beach, Jane. Uh, a lovely woman. They've been married all these years. They have children. His daughter went to camp with my daughter, um, and he's he's remained a friend. But but you know we had the wild and crazy days. Now I'm talking about Key West in 19 oh let's say 74. You know I don't do drugs, but it was all about drug smuggling and plenty of material for a troubadour. He used to write the songs as a bar down there called the Chart House. And he used to write the songs in the Chart House bar. And um, when I met him, he was playing at a place called the Logan Lobster House. And he was making $20 a night, which included the Coral Reef Band. He and the band made $20 a night. And then I, I signed, I got his first contract with Criterion Records in North Miami. They handed me a check for $150,000 for. The album was Changes in Attitudes, Changes in Latitudes. The hit song was a white sports coat and a pink crustacean. 
you all have to go on, on um, your phones later to Spotify under Buffett and listen to, a couple, listen to a couple of these songs. This was like before Cheeseburger and Paradise and all that stuff. These were early Buffett, but great lyrics. And especially when you were living in the, in the lyric, you know, you knew the people. That's awesome. Any any thought about like getting into entertainment law when you were working with him and seeing all the money that was changing hands and I'm sure like a very glamorous lifestyle that you were seeing him partake in? Was there a thought yeah. to, it, to go that it, No, I didn't think about entertainment law. I, that was a one-off deal for me. It was a friendship. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'll just tell you flat out, you know, it, it's sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And that isn't me. Um you know, it's just not who I am. So uh, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be a trial lawyer. I wanted to have a family. I wanted to be uh, stable. Uh, I, ju- I was just with Bill Clinton last week at the 92nd Street Y. And we, we always exchange stories. We're at the identical age. We graduated law school, college, everything at the same time. And <coughs> we have a really, really unique friendship. And he was telling me, but it's not even in his book. It's not even published. It. He got nine scholarships to college based upon his saxophone playing the sax. And he wanted to be Johnny Coltrane sax player. And the first time he's ever told me, he said, but I wanted to have a family life and a normal life. He says, and he says, and a, and a jazz mus- musician lives his life in clubs. He said, and I didn't want to do that. I felt the same way. I wanted to have a normal life. I, I didn't have much of a childhood, as you could imagine. I mean, there wasn't any any of that there. So I wanted just to like provide a normal life for me and my family. So no no entertainment law. I went back to trying personal injury. I like that Bill Clinton thought being a jazz musician that life was too uh, was too chaotic. So instead, he decided to to be a be the president of the United States. That was. That was the more tame, the more tame regular life that he sought out. Yeah, it, I think it just it fit him a whole lot more, um, and uh, he he is something else. I mean, I've spent a lot of time with him, you know, and I never cease to be amazed. I mean, I know a lot of impressive people. There is nobody who's smarter or more impressive than Bill Clinton, or that, that I can imagine. I I always think that I I say that and. The next time he does something else or says something else that just just knocks me over. Well, I want to I want to get into the Bill Clinton years in a in a moment, but I want to I want to go back a little bit further and I, I want to just chat a little bit more about you starting the practice because you said something that piqued my interest, which is you were you were based in Miami with your with the firm that you spent three years with um, after the Justice Department, and then you started your practice. Did you start it in Miami, or did you start it in in the in Key West? No, it was always in Miami. I, I would fly back and forth. Oh, it was. It was in both places. Three times a week, a week. But you know, my office was in Miami, and I would just I would commute. But there was an opportunity there that I was. I mean, I small, started with very small cases, yeah. and I was twenty nine years old. I mean, it's not like you know you're going to set the world on fire. So how in in the in the seventies, obviously it's pre-internet and Google and all that. How do you go about going from you know you you hang your shingle and you know I'm I'm assuming you didn't bring a huge book of business from your from your previous job. How did you go about in those early years drumming up business and getting clients and and you know becoming you know growing this growing this firm? 
Well, I, I wasn't shy because that doesn't work. Uh, I left my old firm with seven cases, uh, which I sort of tried to live off of for a few months and get them resolved. And, um, you know, it, it's like the food chain. Well, not like it is the food chain. You know, at the bottom of the ocean is the little amoeba, and the shrimp eat that, the fish eat the shrimp, the bigger. That's exactly what building a practice was. If you know what you're doing. I make it sound a little easier than it is because honestly, I think 99% of the people that have tried my particular uh, pathway have failed. You know, I, this is not easy. Most people um, get destroyed or eaten up by a few natural enemies of trial lawyers. Uh, they're just, just like we all have natural enemies. One of them is, is uh, alcohol and substance abuse, knocks out big number of people. The other is greed. Knocks out a lot of people get greedy and and they they do things that are unethical or wrong or take shortcuts. It knocks them out sooner or later. Uh, and the other is something in the category of uh, arrogance. Uh, not exactly sure. Kind of losing humility. People become, they think because they're successful in life that they're smart. A lot of dumb people that are successful also. Not everybody's smart. But um, no, I, 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 just, um, I just kept going. And, um, and I, I had pretty good um, uh, sources of business. My mother managed an uh, apartment complex out at the airport with about 300 units. And she wasn't shy either. She let people know what I did. And I got cases from, from my mom. And, down in Key West, people got to know me a little bit. I had some good trial results. And, you know, it was it was it was very stepstone. Yeah, were there were there any cases during those early years that kind of you thought like really made made your career? Like, were there a, a few noteworthy ones that that kind of altered the trajectory of your career? Yeah, there, there were. I mean, it made me feel better. There, there were cases that other people had either declined or they were too much of a long shot and I took them and because I liked the client or I felt I could do something with the case. And there were a bunch of them, you know, here in Miami and, and uh, over in the West Coast of Florida and uh, in uh, the uh, Fort Myers, Naples area, down in Key West. And, you know, I, I wasn't afraid. I just, you know, I just did it. And, um, you know, and most of them turned out actually pretty well. Um, you know, I, I mean, I remember one of my first cases in Key West. It was a big success. I represented a 14-year-old beautiful young girl named uh, Katie Reed. And uh, her mom was also a single mom, and she had three children. Her oldest son became a cop. Her next daughter became something else. And Katie was, was severely injured when a motorcycle ran into her bike, left her uh, hemiparetic, you know, paralyzed on the left side. And no one wanted the case. There was no insurance. And she was the sweetest girl in the world. And I found a solvent defendant, got her a couple million dollars, which made all the difference. And back then, it may have been between one and two, but it made all the difference in her world. And I had some other cases like that. that you know, you know that uh, you know, years later, you get invited to the weddings, and you know, of the of the kids, they're still thinking about you. Yeah. 
how how did the firm just from a business perspective how did the firm grow during those early years and and when did you take on partners and and associates and and what was kind of the trajectory like um just more from a business side of things it was bumpy it wasn't a straight line trajectory at all uh you know i i wasn't in a position to hire the number one in this class or her class there were no women in the law my law school class had three women in the whole the whole not the class the whole law school um it was bumpy i had a few good experiences with smart people who moved on or didn't want to do negligence work i had a few uh, bad experiences uh, it was a lot of trial and error but but it kept um you know i have a a, a mailing piece called uh, growth through quality and that was what i sought i sought to grow through quality and uh, and that's what I've tried to do each step of the way. What, what does that mean? You mean quality cases, quality personnel, everything quality? What's, what's, what's the focus? Yeah. Kind of, yes, uh, the quality life. I mean, um, treating your, your clients fairly, um, uh, taking cases that are quality in terms of quality clients. I always I tell the lawyers now as they walk back and forth. I'm sitting here in the corner office. Hard for me to believe I'm sitting here in the corner office, but but um, but I, you know, I said, you know, okay, it's a really hard case. Liability is really tough. I said, tell me about the client. Is this a quality client? Is this a client the jury is going to relate to? Because in a close case, the jury will give the benefit of the doubt to a, uh, to a good client, to a needy, someone who needs help. And who they can identify with. So, quality has been the the, uh, the the name of the game here. And and I hire quality people. My office managers been with me forty seven years. Started with me. With you, I'm talking about carbon paper and whiteout. You guys don't know what that is. You know, we didn't have. Honestly, we didn't have. We had electric typewriters. And and six sets of carbon paper and no computers. And I mean, even photocopying was like something big, you know. I mean, but 47 years, she just left. She's, I mean, she's here, but she's, you know, emeritus. And and I always hired quality people. No one ever had to ask for a raise. I figured if someone had to ask me for a raise, I was doing something wrong. I always beat them to the punch. They did good work. I walked and said, you just got a raise. Uh, so uh, yeah, and I have a, you know, incidentally, a quality support system. I have a very high quality wife. She's amazing, and dedicated, and, and and just magnificent, and high quality people in my life. You know, so I'm very lucky. So tell us, you obviously you taught you chatted about Bill Clinton earlier, but how did you? Um, at what point did you get involved with the with with Bill Clinton, and how did you kind of become a part of the Clinton administration in the '90s? Well, in 91, when he was running, he was 46, uh, I met him at a $500 per person fundraiser here in Miami. And I didn't hit it off with him at all, particularly when I met him. But, um, but I also got to meet his staff, which we now all know in, in all government positions that, and other positions, corporate as well. Staff is key. And his first employee, paid employee, was George Stephanopoulos, 
Uh, George had just come back from Oxford. He was a Rhodes Scholar. And uh, George's father and grandfather are both uh, Greek Orthodox priests. So they had hoped that George, who was a theology major, they had hoped that George would become a priest. George was a little younger than me, maybe 10 years at the time. And so I became friends with George because Clinton was doing this and George was his lead guy. And we hit it off. And then, you know, after, you know, first fundraiser, I did a fundraiser and then I got invited to the White House and, uh, after Clinton was elected. Uh, I went to the inauguration uh, in Little Rock. Actually, I went to everything. Uh, I, it, I, disproportionately to the fundraising that I was able to do then, but proportionate to the enthusiasm and even in the loyalty I had towards Clinton and the administration. So everything that happened, you know, um, I mean, these are long Bill Clinton stories, but we just, when Clinton was elected, he came from Arkansas. And the Arkansas, the, the, the um, mansion in the Capitol, in Little Rock, the mansion is a four bedroom, three bath house that you would see in Nassau County, Long Island. That's just the governor's mansion. So four three, and it's a very humble kind of stuff. And Clinton, you know, smart as could be, but not very exposed or sophisticated. He didn't really know how to dress. Uh, I was buying him his ties and directing him where to get his shoes. He, you know, he's on his feet sixteen hours a day. I looked at his shoes. And said, Mr. President, <laughs> got to do better than this. You know, it's, this is uncomfortable. You're standing. And he loves my ties. If you look at the cover of almost all of his books, and, and if you look at the signing of the uh, the uh, treaty between um, Begin and Arafat, which I was at, because um, Clinton invited me to everything Jewish, he thought that, because I was his Jewish friend, he introduced me as his Jewish friend, and, and he, he introduced me as his haberdasher to people. He said, this is our release, he's my haberdasher. And, um, but if you look at the cover, the book covers or the photos, 80% of the time, those are ties that I've given him that he wore um, in those events. And I have not bought one for him and one for me. But um, he is just a guy that appreciates loyalty. And uh, and uh, I worked, you know, somewhat in the first administration, the first, um, I was young. He was 46 when he was elected, I was 46. And in the first administration, um, I just did whatever I could do to help and uh, get ready for re-election. And, uh, you know, just, I was there. I was at the White House, in the West Wing. I had whatever I could do. And then uh, he, I, in the first administration, uh, he had some things that he wanted me to do. He said, what would you like to do? And I remembered President Kennedy um, reignited a program called uh, the, the uh, uh, President's Council for Sports and Physical Fitness. It's actually an Eisenhower program, but Kennedy gets credit for it. And I said, well, Mr. President, I said, I've always been interested in sports and physical fitness. There's this, it's okay. He said, you know, you're chair and I'll you form a committee. And so I formed a committee, or he formed a committee, presidential appointments with Florence Joyner, Flo jo, who you guys, I hope, remember Flo jo. Yeah. Tom McMillan, the coach of the Boston Celtics, I can't remember his name, 
and I had this President's Council on Sports and Physical Fitness, I had free wheel. I could do what I wanted to do, and we did. We developed programs to improve fitness in schools, and then sort of a newer program that I pushed for improved physical fitness for seniors. Um, I remember I'm 46, and it didn't matter. He, he liked what I was doing, and I liked what I was doing. We had meetings in Washington, and uh, it was fun. And uh, then in the second administration, after he was elected, uh, and then it got me to Washington all the time, but not like when I was in the Justice Department where I had nothing to do. I get there now and I you know, I have an A-pass into the White House. You know, you walk, the A-pass takes you everywhere except the residence. And, but, you know, it'd be movie night in Washington and you know I was there for something. And, and uh, like, um, there was a movie that was debuting A Few Good Men. There wasn't A Few Good Men. It was... Um, Movie about servicemen in the Navy. Anyhow, he'd say he'd call up and say to me and my wife and say, you know, it's movie night, it's Friday night, come over to the White House, we're gonna watch movies and popcorn and whatever else. So I was having a ball, you know, and still not making a whole lot of money as a lawyer, but enough. I mean, I don't think I made a million dollars in those days. And um and um, then in the second administration after he got reelected, I worked really, really hard on this reelect. I did raise a lot of money and I did have a lot of events and and he trusted me and uh, his staff trusted me and I knew his staff. So I had access. And so then people back home here, back home, they hear, you know, they write up the newspaper writes articles about you and the president. And and when you're perceived to have access to the president of the United States, your stock goes up pretty quickly. You know, people like that in Leesfield, he knows the president. So in the second administration, try and keep this short, he calls me up and says, all right, I've got good news and I've got bad news. I said, okay. He says, well, he says the good news is that uh, you're no longer on the council, no longer the president's council for physical fitness. I said, oh, okay. He said, but the really good news is, he says, you're going to join uh, Edgar Bronfman four U.S. senators, four members of Congress, and three other esteemed people, and head up the President's Council for Holocaust Asset Recovery. He said, you are going, uh, he said, we have a huge budget. Congress, the bill passed 99 to nothing in the Senate and 400 and something to two in the House to form the President's Council on Holocaust Asset Recovery, to find all of the looted, and stolen Holocaust assets that were in the United States, of which there were plenty. Edgar Bronfman from Seagram's, that Bronfman, he was the chair. He had a plane. He had a, uh, Jesus, really good plane. I forget which one it was. Um, but he flew us all over. And we. I did that for uh, for the remainder of the second term. And we, we, uh, we issued a really comprehensive report. We traveled to, we interviewed people like uh, Ron Lauder, uh, who was holding a lot of looted assets. Looted assets, mostly art for Lauder. These are people that were doubtful providence. The, the law is you can't hold um, good title to stolen property. And what would happen was people would get Nazi looted art or Jewish artifacts or Judaica and keep it. So, or donate it. So, we spent the, that whole time 
finding and discovering the art. And it was amazing. Or were these were these positions um, full time positions, or were you still practicing during this time? Still practicing. They were not designed to be full time. You could spend as much time as you wanted. As I said, you know, I'm kind of a sturdy guy. I'm energetic, and, and I did whatever you know. So I was seven days a week uh, for me. But we traveled all over the country. We went to Seattle uh, to the Seattle Art Museum and, and found the Odalisque, which is a very famous piece. We did A Woman in Gold, the whole George Clooney movie. Uh, some people think it was based upon the lawyer in the George Clooney movie, but where he recovered all the assets. Uh, I mean, I got to do what I wanted to do. And, I, and the firm, I still was working, obviously, full time. Still, you know, this time, there's 46 runs elected. Second term, he's 50. I'm 50. You know, those are prime years in the practice of law. So, but this was also very exciting. We stayed at the, my wife and I stayed at the Lincoln bedroom in the White House. We got to spend a lot of time with him and travel with him a little bit. I was on Air Force One a couple of times. It's all very exciting. I told him my life has been very serendipitous. Uh, this is, this is, this is fun stuff. Yeah, very cool. Did you, you uh, sorry. No, I was gonna ask, you know, obviously, um, maybe this, maybe you have the same answer here that you had about Jimmy Buffett, but after you go through these eight years, you have a taste of political life, you're involved in campaigns, you're obviously helping a very important person do very important things. Um, did you think about a career shift at all, or you always knew after those eight years, you were going to go back to full-time, uh, practice of law? I know you're already doing full-time, but do you ever think about, shifting gears at all during those eight years? Not into politics, Lee, because um, you give up your privacy if you enter politics. And I wasn't willing to do that. Also, I was pretty determined to make some money uh, along the way. I mean, really, I mean, not making any, if you're, if you're honest, you're not making any money in politics. And I didn't have any family money. I, my wife didn't have any family money. When we got married, she made $3,000 a year as a teacher, and I made a dollar an hour as a law clerk. I mean, so we didn't have any money back in the day. And so I, you know, I really just, I fell into this litigation against the Japanese manufacturers, which I did for about 11 years. Uh, and I did nothing but that, suing Honda, Kawasaki, and Suzuki for 11 plus years. And, and I did make some money because I found a niche. Uh, and it allowed me to do things in politics without being a politician. So I guess the answer is I've always been very interested in politics. And I've always been very supportive of candidates. And, I'm, you know, I go to still go. I'm going to the mayor of Miami is having something next week. And I just left the Clintons in New York. And, but the short answer to your question is I, I didn't get uh bitten or smitten with atonement fever to the point that i wanted to run for anything uh, I, I wanted to be i wanted to try cases and get great results and i was able to do that i mean being a trial lawyer is you know it's hard and, and it's a i mean in what we did uh, you know and still do it's very it's very taxing 
Ira, we're, we're coming up on 45 minutes. I have a few more questions for you, but um, I just want to be respectful of your time here. Uh, I, you, you know, you've been practicing in this space for so long. I'm, I'm curious to know how the, how the practice of, of personal injury work has, has really changed in what ways is it, is it the same practice that it was when you first got into it? And in what ways is it, is it different today? Technology is the big difference. Trying a case in court, the anatomy of a trial, basically is still the same. You know, you still got to select a jury, make opening statement, do direct and cross-examination, have a charge conference, closing argument. But technology has impacted everything along the way. Now when I pick a jury, I have a jury consultant in the courtroom with his laptop open, looking up the background of the jurors. So if I ask a juror, you know, have you ever been convicted of a crime? And she says, no, he's looking it up and he finds yes. If I don't want that juror, he, I go over to him and what about her? He says, well, she just lied. And I, I get a challenge for cause. I get her knocked off the jury. But technology in every step of the way, what we do in preparation for trial, the information we get about the cruise lines and about the programs they develop, uh, about how we prepare for trial now and technology in court using PowerPoints. I mean, when I started trying cases, I had a blackboard, and that was a stretch to write down numbers on a blackboard. You know, and so yeah, it's changed a lot, um, but the, rud the rudiments are still about the same of what makes a good trial lawyer and how to win a case. Um, um, but you have to, you know, I'm not very techie, so I have people here who are, and they get me all primed up and ready to go, and, you know, and they push the buttons and I talk. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's, it's still, it's still a, a, a art form. It really is. And 40, yet, 47 years or plus later, do you still have that pit in your stomach when you're waiting to pick a jury? Yeah. Yeah. I to actually a little bit too much about about a lot of things. I mean, I internalize my worries. Um, it's just who I am. I guess it's not changing very much. Um, I just went to a, a gastroenterologist mm -hmm. last week. So I've got this feeling about this pit in my stomach. He says, "How long have you had it?" I says, "About fifty-five years." I said, "Since the eviction, <laughs> since the eviction notice." I pasted it on my door. I said, I kind of have had that feeling of like, I, you know, someone said to me once, smart man, he says, there's two types of fear. He says, there's the fear of not getting what you want. He says, you live your whole life with that fear. I'm never going to be successful. I'll never get married. He says, and then there's the fear of losing what you have. He said, well, that's where you get when you get older. You know, it's not the fear of not getting what you want. I don't have to work for money you don't have to work for for uh, achievement for another plaque or anything else like that i don't have to work to be friends with the president of the united states or jimmy buffett so you kind of get you kind of do what you're going to do and and you try to be a good family member parent grandparent community member you do a lot of work the foundation that i started in 1990 has really got its tentacles out there in the community but now it's like fear of losing what you have you know, how long will I be healthy? How long will I be able to do this? How long, you know, it, it's like, you know, that's a big deal. So the pit in your stomach just stays the same for me anyhow. Yeah. 
Go ahead, Lee. I can see you getting ready to jump in. No, I was just about to empathize with the pit in the stomach thing, but I think that's a that's very much a lawyer, uh, a lawyer trait, and maybe also a a, um, a Jewish lawyer with roots in Brooklyn trait <laughs> as well. Probably so. Uh, <laughs> it uh, it's a motivating force in many ways, and uh, and uh, you know, and then you know, so the gastroenterology says, "Have you tried meditation?" I said, you know, not really, you know. He says, well, let me give you a meditation tape. So I turned this meditation tape. He says, this will help you a lot. Turn the meditation tape on. This this guy with a British accent says, good afternoon. He says, today we're going to talk about breathing. You know, breathing. He says, imagine a big oak tree. And I went, click. You know, that, was the end. <laughs> that was the end of my meditation. This very calming voice. The name of the meditation is like calm. He says, and now he says, think of the roots of the big oak tree. And I'm sitting there saying, ah, this, this ain't for me. So I'm not, I'm not meditating. But I do exercise. The other uh, antidote for, for stress is exercising. And I do that. Um, but the meditation, that's not going to happen. So with the last last question, I'm just curious if you have any advice that you would give to young lawyers, lawyers starting their careers, lawyers who might be interested in getting into the world of personal injury. Um, yeah, just kind of any any big picture advice you have. Well, it's a, good, it's a timely question because in 25 minutes, a lawyer we just hired who was clerking for a very prestigious federal judge here is coming in to get ready to start here in September. And uh, he's very enamored with our firm. He's very smart and very nice. And so I'm spending some time with him. And I, I think the, the best advice, um, I think the best advice I could give anybody, lawyer or not lawyers, don't lose your humility. You know, remember, you know, it, it's true. When you walk down wherever it is in New York, the street in New York, you see, a hungry or starving man or someone who's down and out in their luck and you just had a great meal somewhere and your stomach is kind of full and you're satiated, you can't understand how that person feels because you've just eaten and he's hungry. And the same is true for being a lawyer or in life. You know, don't lose that empathy, that ability to understand what it's like not to have something, you know, not to, to have the security or the ability to get a meal or, and then when you do, I tell them, I just wrote an article about this. Is, you know, when you're a younger lawyer, listen. And when you're an older lawyer, teach. You know, do those two things. Listen, and then when you, when you think you have something to offer, then teach. And that's really what I've tried to do but with, with spotted success. I mean, I'll tell you, some of the stuff, you know, I, I misjudged some people, and they weren't who I thought they were. I spent a lot of time. And, they sort of bit the hand and fed them. I learned something there. But yeah, I, I think, you know, listen, listen to other people. And, and, um, and, um, and, and when everybody knows what doing the right thing is, you just, you know how you feel when you're doing the right thing. Uh, I have a family <clears throat> from Mexico that is not very well off, but they are a wonderful family to live out in California. And so every once in a while, I, I drop them a little present. 
the happiest day of my life is when I put the, the envelope in the mail. And, and I know it's on its way to them and they're going to get a little extra something that will help them through a tough time. Happiest day. So, yeah, help other people. You know, it's the old castor bread on the waters. Uh, it, it seems to, to work, you know, for me. My, I'm doing pretty good in terms of maintaining the uh, my spirit about all this. Um, and uh, I hope that your listeners uh, get one, one person that resonates with that person. It'll make a big difference. Well, I think that's a perfect place to stop. Um... That's really special. And, and yeah, so, so appreciate your time. Um, this has been, this has been a, a, a real pleasure to get to chat with you for the last hour. And um, it's been a fascinating, fascinating run and excited to see where it all continues to go. Um, well, uh, I'll see you all in, in New York. Um, uh, I'm there probably usually uh, in the spring and the fall. And we'll, we'll go uh, grab something to eat. No shortage of restaurants. Uh, in the city. That sounds great. Uh, again, we really appreciate your time. This was fantastic. It's been great, great meeting you. And it it was, uh, it was great meeting Connor who set this thing up too and tell him hi and and send me a note. And I won't be in in the city until the fall. Uh, the Clinton global initiative is in September or so they timed it with the United Nations. So I'll come up for that. Okay. Well, I'll wait for my invite in the mail. Um, um, (laughs) we'll tell Connor. We'll tell Connor you said hi. Um, we appreciate it. Have a great day. Thanks. Pleasure meeting, pleasure meeting you both, Cooper uh, and Lee. For more on all things real estate and the law, subscribe to this and our other podcasts. Follow Bergstein, Flynn, Knowlton, and Polina on social media. Subscribe to our newsletter and go to bfklawoffice.com. That's bfklawoffice.com to learn more.